Welcome to Cybersecurity Unplugged, the cyber theory podcast where we explore issues that matter in the world of cybersecurity. Good day. This is Steve King, the Managing Director at Cyber Theory, inviting you folks to uh, the latest version of our podcast, where Chris Doherty and I will be talking about cyber warfare and what's going on in the in the middle of the war that we're involved in here in um, Ukraine and Russia. Chris is a senior fellow for the defense program at the Center for New American Security. His uh, primary areas of research include defense strategy, operational concepts, and, and force planning. He combines these research priorities in, um, in his project, which is called the New American Way of War, and that's comprised of military strategies, operational concepts, and force designs to deter and then, you know, if necessary, defeat whoever our adversaries are. I haven't read that yet. I would presume that's going to be Chinese or Russian aggression, but but maybe it's all adversaries. Prior to joining uh, the center, Doherty served as a senior advisor to the deputy assistant director of defense at DOD where he led the department or the development and and writing of major sections of the 2018 National Defense Strategy, the wargaming and analytical inputs to the NDS, National Defense Strategy. And prior to that, he wrote the 2018 Defense Analytic Guidance, which revamped the previous force planning construct and mapped out major reforms to DOD's analytic enterprise. Doherty served as an airborne infantryman with the 2nd Battalion, 75th Ranger Regiment in Fort Lewis, Washington in the late 90s, holds a master's degree with distinction in international studies from the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies and a bachelor's degree, summa cum laude, in international studies from the Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies at the University of Washington. So welcome, Chris. Thanks. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Steve. Sure. Thanks for that very nice introduction. Well, you're you're welcome. So let's jump in here. My first question is: despite the overarching strategic priorities laid out by the Biden administration and initial indicators provided by DOD, it's not clear to me how the next national defense strategy will prioritize these threats and what the primary role of the U.S. military might turn out to be. You've worked on this problem for a while now. You know, of the strategic options, which I think are high-end deterrence, day-to-day competition, and and full-spectrum, what you guys call full-spectrum competition, which makes the most sense and what role will cybersecurity play? When you're looking at a strategy, you're not going to do just one thing. The United States doesn't have the benefit of being able to just solve one problem. We've got to solve multiple problems across multiple timeframes. So really, it's not, are we going to do one of these things and not the other two? It's about the weight of emphasis that you're putting on on different aspects of your strategy, because there will, of course, be high-end deterrence. There will be day-to-day competition, and there will probably be some, some full-spectrum activities. But what really matters is how you balance between those, not sort of you know, push one completely off to the side. Okay, so with that, you know, being said within that within that framework, 
I, I think this national defense strategy is trying to focus more on deterring, you know, high-end deterrence, which is to say deterring China from potentially invading Taiwan. Laterally, you know, before the Ukraine uh, war, um, deterring Russia from invading NATO or, or otherwise conducting coercive acts against NATO. I still think that's important, but obviously the Russia situation has evolved over the last eight months. I think that's where the focus is. And frankly, that's where the focus of the previous strategy was. But then there's also below this a discussion in, in the, the 2018 strategy of what we called competition and what the new strategy, I think, is increasingly referring to as campaigning. And, and that is these day-to-day activities that might have their own security outcomes. They may, they may sort of you know, be their own issue, their own sui generis operation. But in other cases, they might actually be setting conditions either for deterrence or for what we might need to do in a long-term conflict. And I'll use a, an example of that because I know this is a very amorphous concept. It's, it's hard to wrap your head around. But if we look at what China has done over the last decade in the South China Sea, I think it's a good example of the interaction between day-to-day competition and high-end deterrence. What China has done um, through its island reclamation and turning these reclaimed islands into increasingly a string of military bases is they've they've stretched out their ability to use land-based systems. So this is like surface-to-air missiles and anti-ship cruise missiles that are based on land, as well as they've put some airfields and some ports on, on these islands, and they've turned them into sort of little military bastions out in the South China Sea. Now, by themselves, these things are not a huge headache for the U.S. Joint Force in the event of a war, but they're not nothing. They're certainly more than just a speed bump. They're not a, a preclusive defense. But nevertheless, they're a problem that the joint U.S. military planners have to deal with. Our allies and partners have to deal with these things. But they happened in the rubric of competition, but they've changed the the map. They've changed the board of the game if we were to actually get into a conflict. And so that's a good example of how these things start to interact. And you can't fully disentangle high-end deterrence from day-to-day competition. So the problem with that is, from a functional perspective, is you can write whatever you want in the strategy. And the 2018 national defense strategy that I worked on was very clear. We were going to prioritize, you know, war fighting, combat preparation over day-to-day competition. We said that explicitly. It's super clear. The problem is, once a, the ink is dry on a strategy and you actually hand it over to the people who are going to implement it, they have their own ideas about what that means. And... Oftentimes, the the friction here is between the combatant commanders, so people like the commander of United States Indo-Pacific Command, the commander of uh, United States Central Command. They have their own ideas about what competition means and how that relates to deterrence. And they tend to focus very much on what's happening today. What sort of activity am I seeing from China if I'm the the Indo-Pacific commander? Or what activities am I seeing from Russia if I'm the European commander, for example? And they tend to want a lot of resources to reduce risk in the near term in that competition phase, because they think that if they compete effectively and they shape the environment and they shape adversary perceptions, they won't have to fight a war on their watch or they'll be better prepared for it if it does happen. But there's a flip side to that, right? In a world of finite resources, I can't both do a bunch of stuff today and do a bunch of stuff tomorrow. I've got to pick and choose where I'm going to, where I'm going to spend my dollars. And recently, a couple of years ago, the chief of staff of the Air Force and the commandant of the Marine Corps jointly put out 
a couple op-eds. They were talking about what they called future readiness and how the Department of Defense needs to invest in future readiness because we're spending too much on current day readiness to resource day-to-day competition. And their argument was, you know, it's great to do all these things in competition on a day-to-day basis out in the Pacific Ocean or in the, in the Atlantic or, or in Europe. All of these things have some utility, but they're coming at the cost of their services ability to actually fight wars in the future if it came to that. And they, they felt like the balance had been shifted in the wrong direction, which in my mind, as somebody who you know, wrote a lot of the national defense strategy of 2018, was really ironic because we told the department literally to not do that exact thing. And so I guess what my, my point here is, is that I think this strategy will probably focus more on high-end deterrence than it does on what they're calling campaigning. But despite that, what actually happens when you implement the strategy is going to be a whole other matter. And, and you can see that just today, literally right now, with the original focus of the strategy was going to be on China, 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 and then maybe a little bit of Russia and some other stuff. And as we're seeing, the world had other plans. And they were probably focused more on a long-term strategy. Um, and you can see this in their budgets, right? They've invested a lot in research and development. They were interested in more of a long-term strategy. The problem is, again, the world events intervened, and now they find themselves essentially supplying a, a little bit of a proxy conflict in, in Ukraine. And so, you know, we can we can write one thing in a strategy, and what actually gets implemented can end up being something else entirely. Yeah, is that a function of a multiplicity of advanced technologies, more like compared to I don't know Vietnam War or the World War II or Korea? Or has that ever changed? Has it changed uh, since then? I, yeah, I think it's. I think it's just a, a constant of strategy. You know, every every state of a sufficient size, you know, and and there haven't been a ton of them, but right, every every state that has a, a security outlook that is more than defending their own borders has to think about multiple challenges in multiple areas. Um, and for the United States as a global power, we're thinking about global challenges, and you know, essentially the whole world is an operating environment that we're concerned about. And within that, we can obviously prioritize. Some threats are more acute than others. Some threats are you know, more dangerous to US national uh, security or national interests. And so we focus on those areas. And you know, obviously, the National Defense Strategy of 2018 focused on Indo-Pacific and on Europe. And then kind of you know, the Middle East was, was in third place. Um, but sort of everything else is sort of, you know, we'll, we'll deal with it as it happens. And I think this 22 National Defense Strategy originally really wanted to focus on the Indo-Pacific and deprioritize Europe a little bit. Uh, I think they had to go back to the drawing board, obviously, once Russia invaded Ukraine. But, you know, that, that sort of prioritization between theaters is not uncommon to today. Um, it's been a constant theme in U.S. defense strategy really since, you know, prior to World War II. I mean, the whole, per, you know, the whole Europe first aspect of World War II, which, you know, if we actually look at where our resources went in the beginning of World War II, we didn't actually do Europe first. We, we kind of did uh, uh, the, the Pacific first and then ramped up in Europe and then kind of ramped back to the Pacific in late 1945. But nevertheless, this is a, a constant theme. You know, the British dealt with this, the, the, heck, the Romans dealt with this, <laughs> all the way going back to the Roman Empire. So managing multiple threats in multiple theaters is, is just a, a fact of life in the United States. Yeah. Okay. We've now invested, I guess, invested is the right word, what, 40 billion plus into this uh, conflict at this point, And well, at any point in time, I guess, can we really imagine a future where 
any of our adversaries are prepared to you know launch a conventional a conventional warfare attack like Russia has on Ukraine or is it all going to be stepped up to either nuclear or cyber I absolutely think it's it, you know conventional warfare is possible I wouldn't use the word probable but I definitely think it's possible and I think one of the salutary effects of Ukraine I mean and I hate to say this cuz obviously the war is a massive tragedy for the people of Ukraine and you know even if they win it's going to be a, a pretty a pretty bloody victory for them but one of the salutary effects in US national security and I think global national security is it's woken people up to the idea that major interstate conflict is still a possibility i think that during the cold war it was seen as a possibility um but it was always under this very intense nuclear overhang which ultimately i think successfully deterred the deterred both sides from from taking that step but there was a belief i think in the post cold war era that that was that was just not a thing that that states did anymore that you know a combination of economic interconnectedness and nuclear deterrence and us hyperpower as it were was increasingly rendering the world free from free from interstate conflict at that scale and i just don't think that was realistic i think it was anomalous i think if you look through human history that's just not a that's just not a thing that has been a consistent theme of you of human history and actually the opposite is the consistent theme that interstate conflict is sort of the norm and i think we actually just lived through a a 30 to 40 year period where it was just an anomalous one in 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 global history and now we're unfortunately coming out of that period now to your point you know how much does this war or would a punitive war between the united states and, and china or the united states and russia look like what we're seeing in ukraine and or how much would it you know look like you know cyber warfare or you know nuclear warfare i mean look it, you talk to people at united states cyber command and, and they'll tell you you know they're at cyber war with the with the chinese and russians every day the the gap between warfare and day-to-day competition in cyberspace is very 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 small and very blurry now on the nuclear side you know that's something that defense analysts are really starting to wrap our heads around again for the first time in decades because for the first time in decades the united states is facing nuclear armed conventional opponents that have significant nuclear capabilities but also possess you know present this this pretty cute conventional warfare threat and you know say what we will about the north koreans yes they have a nuclear weapons capability no it's it's not really what we would call a full nuclear capability on the order of the russians or even the chinese but nevertheless you know that's that's kind of like a fundamentally different order of threat than what we see from china or russia in terms of the ability of all to escalate to to real no kidding nuclear exchanges that could you know potentially kill tens of millions or even hundreds of millions of people. So yeah, I mean I I do think that the nuclear aspect of this is important, but as we're seeing and you know we're seeing in Ukraine and I I think we could see if if there were ever a war between the United States and China, um it would not immediately go nuclear. And even if it did result in some limited nuclear exchanges that doesn't necessarily mean the war would end. And I think that's one of the the flawed beliefs that a lot of folks have is that you know somebody detonates a nuclear weapon and all of a sudden everything stops and i just don't think that that's a realistic assumption to make yeah you're right i mean it doesn't seem reasonable to me uh, either certainly not in this day and age and if you look at the four obvious adversaries you know china and russia and iran and north korea they have very four distinctive you know objectives uh, agendas that 
each of them are trying to fulfill, and none of them look the same as the other. Among those, which is the most significant threat in your mind? Oh, China, absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. I mean, and, and and without you know, I mean, we can debate. You know, there's some folks who want to call China a challenge and and Russia a threat, or you know, trying to make the distinction that Russia is this sort of acute near term problem, and and China is you know, China is a longer term problem. I don't know that I you know, I think maybe five, six, seven, eight years ago, I would have probably bought into that theme a little bit more. But unfortunately, you know, China has actually accelerated a lot of its military development. We have not, I would argue, kept pace in certain areas, although there's some success stories in there. But I think what you're, what we're increasingly seeing is that we should no longer think about China as some far off future problem. I, I'm not of the opinion that that 2027. I, I, you probably, I mean, I don't know if your listeners have heard that the notion that 2027 is this uh, magical date for the People's Liberation Army, where all of a sudden they're going to have you know the ability to invade Taiwan, and you know one day Xi Jinping will wake up and snap his fingers and 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 it'll happen. I, I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think 2027 is a marker on a long path of military development for the People's Liberation Army. It's a point at which they think they will transition in these various these various periods of development that they're trying to achieve. But you know, I, I I do think we need to start thinking about China as a as a problem today and not just something that's off into the future. You know, I would say, look, China number one, Russia number two, but obviously the Russia situation is kind of different now given what's happening in Ukraine. And then I would argue in terms of day-to-day risk, you know, there's more day-to-day friction, I would argue, with the Iranians, simply because we are in Iraq. We're still conducting some operations, I believe, in Syria, although albeit quite limited. Um, but we're still operating on a day-to-day basis in the Persian Gulf. And there's just that that source of constant friction between ourselves and the Iranians. But with that being said, the Iranians are fully aware of their conventional weakness. They don't have a nuclear deterrent. The Iranians are, are, are a sort of, you know, there's a lot of friction, but it's low level friction. The North Koreans, I'd argue there's less friction, but if there were to be real friction, it'd be real bad. Because, you know, despite the fact that DPRK armed forces are, are not what they, they once were, they're still significant. They still have a lot of artillery that can range the greater Seoul metropolitan area. They have nuclear weapons and increasingly means to deliver them at, at longer ranges. You know, so a Korean Peninsula contingency would be a very, very bad day. The good thing about the Korean Peninsula is that, as you mentioned, they all everybody, you know, all these regimes have different security, you know, goals. I think the major goal of the Kim regime is the is the survival of the Kim regime, and for that, they mostly just want to deter other people from getting into their business. And so, I, you know, I don't see them, and I think most analysts do not see them as an aggressive military power. They do things that look aggressive because they're trying to get people to negotiate with them and, and pay attention to them, not because they want to start a war, because they know that that war does not go well for them. Yeah, right. Uh, you know, China can reasonably uh, have an objective of world global domination, whereas it's hard to imagine North Korea sharing that objective themselves. So. <laughs> North Korea doesn't even dominate its own peninsula. So yeah, right. <laughs> world domination is probably off, off, off the table. Probably off the table, right. Russia, you know, I don't know, invented or used to be masters in the influence ops business. It appears that China has uh, has sort of taken the lead in the, you know, in the disinformation or malinformation space. Can you share your view on what we can expect in there going forward? Because uh, ever since 2000, arguably 12, I guess, 
at least from a noticeability point of view, we have seen a dramatic shift in the outcomes and effect of, of fake news and misinformation here. At least I, that's what I attribute to our current di- societal divide to. And it seems like it gets worse every month. Yeah, I think, and this is a really interesting question. And it's one that people in my field are grappling with now. And that is, to what degree were the Russians very skilled before? Were they the masters of this stuff before? Or to what extent were we just so oblivious to what was happening that it was effective because we were just utterly clueless? And, and they, they really did a good job of... And one thing I do think the Russians have been pretty good at, not great always, but pretty good over the course of history, is understanding the, the points of friction in US society and the ways in which they can exploit those. And sometimes they just take, you know, if you look at what they did, particularly in 2016 and, and leading up to it, and then afterward, a lot of what they would do is sort of, you know, shotgun style attacks where they would, they would try out a bunch of lines, you know, online. And that's, I think, one of the things that social media has been great for them to do is social media allows them to test a bunch of approaches and a bunch of phrases and a bunch of methods mm-hmm. and then figure out which one works because it gar- it garners a response and then just, just keep drilling down on that. And that's something I think they did pretty well. Now, you know, you look at their info operations now in Ukraine and they look a heck of a lot less effective, you know, how much, so how much of their success was like the, the, the stopped clock where it's like, well, it's, you know, it's inevitably going to be right twice a day. Or was it that they were good at it and they got less good? Or were they just okay at it and we were so bad because we were so unaware of what was happening that they they stole a march on us and then we we kind of have figured it out and responded? There are different theories all over the place there. You know, I'm not really sure which one I, I subscribe. I my, I guess if you had to ask me, I think it was that we were so ignorant of what was happening. We had taken our eye off of Russia as a potential threat and, and competitor in the information space so much that they they got inside the wire before we were even aware that they were there. And then once we woke up to it, um, it was too late. I don't know that they were that effective. I just think we were just that, we were caught that unawares. Now, when it comes yep. to China, you know, they have this, this whole, you know, approach that they call three warfares, political, psychological, and, um, or sorry, public opinion, psychological, and uh, lawfare, or legal warfare, uh, what they call it, is their kind of broader approach to thinking about operations in the information environment, you know, I would argue they're, they're kind of a mixed bag. They have successes in some places. So, you know, one thing you'll see a lot of is that, you know, virtually no place refers to Taiwan as Taiwan anymore. Um, you know, so if you, you, you fly in an airplane and they've got, you know, a map showing you where you are in the world, if you fly over Taiwan, it's not listed as Taiwan, it'll be listed as like Chinese Taipei, or, you know, they'll just list the cities in it, but they're not going to call it Taiwan. You know, there are plenty of places where, you know, if you try to book a flight through an airline, they don't refer to Taiwan as Taiwan. They'll refer to it either as the airport, as Taipei, or they'll refer to the, the area as Chinese Taipei. And that's been, a you know, that that is kind of part of China's information operation is convincing the world through all these little agglomerations of bits and bobs of data that Taiwan is not a country. It's it's not an independent entity. It is part of China and and convincing them to stay out of their business. Now, I I think that that has had some success in that area, 
but there is a backlash to that, right? And and you know, I I don't know if your listeners have heard of the 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 idea of wolf warrior diplomacy. Wolf warrior is a a Chinese um, sort of military action film that came out about six or seven years ago now. Sort of you know to paint with a very broad brush, it's kind of like you know Rambo two or Rambo three for China. Um, you know, this is very like you know muscular, aggressive militaristic, not Rambo one, which was actually kind of an anti-war film, if you've, if you've ever seen it, but the, the later ones that got a little bit more, you know, chest-thumpingly patriotic. But, it, but nevertheless, they, they, they've taken on this sort of aggressive public persona in diplomacy and information that I actually think has blown back on them in ways that they're not either not aware of or not capable of fixing. So that, you know, they have these, these, these successes here and there in the info, info environment but with every success they have, they end up sort of shooting themselves in the foot because they are so, there's almost like a, a cultural arrogance that, that comes with sort of believing that you really are, you know, the number one kingdom on, under heaven. And I think that there is an aspect of that sort of imperialistic behavior um, that the Chinese Communist Party and, and Chinese leaders more generally in the way that they, they deal with, you know, especially countries um, around them in Asia who they kind of still see as fundamentally subordinate and junior to, to China. And that, that attitude, almost a haughtiness comes out in these, these diplomatic interactions in a lot of their information operations. And so, you know, again, I think they have some successes here and there, but because of the way they act and the way they behave and their tone deafness to a lot of the rest of the world, they ended up creating a lot of enemies at the same time. Yeah. They've, uh, the global perception has shifted a little bit than now. Russia, I mean, uh, China is not seen so much as the benign trading partner, but rather, a, you know, aggressive sort of pissed off adversary. Yeah. Um, and, and it's also, you know, it, it's easier to not be afraid of China when they weren't as strong. Right? right. So, you know, even if they weren't always, you know, a great partner or, you know, a reliable interlocutor it was different when they were, you know, a regional power and, and one that was pretty limited regional power. Well, now they're you know, the, the major power in East Asia. And I think countries are changing their attitude toward, toward China accordingly. Yeah. You know, from a technology point of view or a cyber security point of view, there's no question, but that we are far behind China in terms of uh, advanced technology development to the extent that, you know, I think the quote from the Joint Chief of Staff uh, General who usually runs war games there and has been doing this for 20 years was, you know, I'm, and we're shutting down this exercise because every time we run the Chinese uh, hand us our ass in 15 minutes. So, uh, you, you know, we need to do something different, which is shocking in a way. Right. I mean, but so we talked about that high end deterrence and leading, you know, with demo, uh, diplomacy and so forth. Yet at the same time, Biden's made policy statements Unwittingly, I think that he's had <laughs> that he's had to walk back later. How realistic to expect that you know by next year we can continue to lead with diplomacy? With you get these people that we're dealing with that uh, have no pretense about their intentions. Yeah, you know, I I think, and and this is my belief. I, I'm not basing this on you know any information I have from folks inside the the White House or the Pentagon. I, I actually don't think that what Biden is saying is a mistake. His statements on Taiwan are pretty clear. He said it now, you know, because the old saying is like once is an accident, twice is a coincidence, and three times is enemy action. 
It's yeah. now at least three times. I think it might be four where he's pretty clearly stated, you know, if China aggressively tries to change the status quo without a provocation from Taiwan, we will come to Taiwan's defense. And I, I don't know if you put all those caveats in there. Uh, maybe that's just me adding it, but I, that's sort of what I hear in my head when he says No, that's, that's accurate. Yeah. But what exactly would we do to defend Taiwan? I mean, that's well, there's, there's a lot we could do. You know, so, you know, first and foremost, you know, and we're seeing this today in Ukraine, right? A lot of it on our side would be intelligence provision. The Taiwans have their, you know, certainly have their own intelligence capabilities. They have their own human intelligence networks in the People's Republic of China. They've got their own technical collection capabilities, but they don't have anything nearly um, what we do, especially in terms of technical collection when it comes to things like space. And, you know, prior to a conflict, China wouldn't be willing, we assume anyway, to take actions against our space assets that would that would blind them. So we're going to be able to start seeing indications and warnings of Chinese movements in all likelihood long before the Taiwans do. So the idea would be that we'd start providing that information so they could get themselves ready. And then, you know, if if it does actually come to war, there's a couple of things that we can do that that help. Number one is just our mere presence in the region causes China a, a dilemma. If they think that we're going to intervene, they can choose to strike U.S. bases and forces in the Pacific, but that's going to bring us fully into the war, right? I mean, without question after that, that is a full war between the United States and China. Um, you hit Guam, it's, it's functionally the same as, as hitting uh, Hawaii in 1941. In 1941, Hawaii was a U.S. possession. It wasn't a state, you know, and Guam is sort of in the same boat. It's a U.S. possession filled with U.S. citizens. If you want to strike Guam as part of this opening salvo, and for China, you kind of have to, you know, then you're, you're in this world in which you've now started a war with the United States. Or you can choose not to strike the United States, but then you're just hoping that the United States doesn't intervene and doesn't get involved. And then there's a whole question of what do you do about U.S. bases in Japan, right? Because a huge amount of U.S. combat power in the Pacific is located in Japan. China probably doesn't want to fight the Japanese alongside us and, the, and Taiwan. They probably want to keep Japan out of the fight. But the problem is, if you allow U.S. bases in Japan to keep operating, then you really haven't achieved your effect just by hitting Guam. And now you're going to face all this U.S. air power that comes out of places like Dakota, Misawa, Kadena, et cetera. So, you know, the Chinese have that problem to solve. And the difficulty is you can't strike U.S. bases in Japan and not also hit Japan, right? Like there's, there's no like way that you can square that circle. You just, just hit the U.S. stuff in Japan because most U.S. bases in Japan are co-located with Japanese self-defense force bases. And a lot of them are in like pretty built up urban areas because you know, Japan is a pretty densely occupied area. So unless you're like super duper incredibly precise with every single one of your weapons, chances are some bombs or some missiles are going to fall where they're not supposed to. They're going to kill uh, you know, either Japanese military personnel or Japanese civilians. And now right, you've brought Japan into the war. And, and, and now that you're starting to change the strategic context, you know, the strategic contours of conflict that you thought was going to be a limited war over Taiwan is now a big regional war with the United States and Japan, and then probably Australia as well, maybe the UK and France. And now it's, you know, you've kind of started World War III over Taiwan, which I don't think the Chinese Communist Party really wants to do. I, I don't think that's, that's, you know, where their head is. And so, you know, there are a lot of things we can do up to even, you know, before we've even really started a war. And then once a war starts, right, you know, we've got a lot of military capabilities that can make life extremely difficult for the Chinese as they try to cross the Taiwan Strait. 
and, and, and prosecute an invasion of Taiwan. The most obvious in my mind is our, our fleet of extremely quiet and extremely capable nuclear attack submarines, the Virginia class um, increasingly, but also still the older Los Angeles class uh, submarines, both highly effective at delivering torpedoes and anti-ship cruise missiles against all sorts of, uh, of targets, both you know surface vessels, but land targets as well, things like ports and, and, and landing areas. And then on top of that, we have a, a good-sized fleet of bombers, not huge relative to what we had during the Cold War, but definitely still you know, the world's largest fleet of long-range strike bombers. Uh, and those can be armed with a variety of weapons. But the big one we'd probably be launching early on in a fight is uh, uh, long-range anti-ship missiles. And then you've got you know, all our fleets of, of destroyers and aircraft carriers, which would probably have to operate at greater range because of the threat from Chinese missiles. But nevertheless, they're still going to be able to bring some kind of combat power to bear. So it's not just, you know, as though, you know, China gets sort of a free pass into Taiwan. And then, you know, you, you talked a little bit about, about cyber. I do think it's important to note that, you know, a lot of folks are out there wondering why we're not seeing more cyber warfare in Ukraine. And, you know, I think a lot of people thought that it was just like a cyber Armageddon in Ukraine, where all the lights would get turned off and, you know, nobody would be able to, you know, we'd go back to the Stone Age because Russia would launch so many effective cyber attacks on, on Ukraine and it's, especially its critical infrastructure. And I think what we're seeing, and I think this is the surprise of some, but not everybody, is just a very, very effective cyber defense campaign supported heavily by the United States, but also by some of our NATO allies that is helping to keep the lights on in Ukraine. I think some folks might have overestimated um, the capability of cyber offensive and, and underestimated the capabilities of cyber defense. And I think we're seeing that today in Ukraine. Now, again, I'm basing that on open sources. I'm not, you know, I've got no... I've got no secret insights into that, but that's, you know, the, the open sources do seem to be suggesting that's what hap- that's what's happening. So you could see something similar in Taiwan where China tries to turn off, you know, huge swaths of critical infrastructure in Taiwan and the United States, along with some of our allies, you know, helps keep the lights on in the cyber domain. That's before we even get sort of any kinetic action. So, you know, there are a lot of things we can do. And also, you know, I, I think one of the things that's important to point out is China hasn't fought a war since 1979. And that war they fought in 1979 was not exactly a successful one. They kind of, you know, invaded Vietnam and had some naval skirmishes with them and mostly then just withdrew behind their border after it didn't go the way they wanted. And since then, they haven't, they haven't you know, had a single real combat operation. So there's really nobody uh, in, the, in, in the People's Liberation Army who's actually been to war and fought in combat. And then they're, you know, purportedly the first thing they're going to do after not having been in combat for almost 50 years is undertake the, the most difficult, most complex operation there is to do, which is an amphibious invasion. And I think a lot of military analysts like myself are pretty skeptical that they're going to have a whole lot of success at that. doesn't mean they can't do it. doesn't mean we shouldn't assume that they can. It just means it's going to be a lot harder for them than perhaps a lot of people understand. Right. We're launching a um, education online learning platform here, which I have told you earlier that we're probably going live in the November kind of time frame. And I'm curious as to your view on, you know, cybersecurity education. You know, we're not, a, you know, we we have this um, democratic republic uh, organization here. We're not an oligarchy. We're, n- we're not running an authoritarian regime. So it's not easy to <laughs> to influence how, what people do with with their educational goals very dissimilar to China and Russia and North Korea, but we're way behind in terms of both level of of understanding in cyber and then just in terms of 
advanced technology progress as well. What, what how important do you think cybersecurity education is, uh, not just to closing the skills gap, but do you think it's too late to have any real impact on the next, you know, 10 years of international conflict? Oh, no. I, I think there's definitely definitely space. Anything we do that can improve our cybersecurity breaks. Now, I mean, my general focus is probably on military organizations and the government, but you know, increasingly it's going to matter across the whole of society because they're not just going to target government systems. They're going to target critical infrastructure. They're going to target civilian systems oftentimes because those are easier targets. So, you know, a good example of that is when we worry about targets against the U.S. government and particularly against our military capabilities, one of the things we're most concerned about is China or Russia targeting the defense contractors and not not necessarily the big prime ones, not the big Lockheeds and Northrop Grumman's and the, the, you know, general dynamics of the world, because those have actually significantly improved their cybersecurity practices over the last 10 years after the discovery of the Chinese advanced persistent threat that we found have been actually exfiltrating large amounts of data throughout the 2000s. No, that's gotten a lot better. What I'm thinking of are sort of the people who provide things like gas and sanitation, you know, just day-to-day services. A lot of those people have to plug into defense networks. It's like the Defense Logistics Agency or United States Transportation Command. Um, but their cybersecurity practices are just all over the map, right? There, some of them are really good, some of them are really terrible. The vast majority are probably somewhere in the middle, and that is a potential backdoor for for China or Russia to get into our systems and and to, to wreak havoc. And so, one of the things I think we need to do is we need to educate people about how to you know how to spot cyber threats, um, how to avoid them, what to do when the, you know when they when they discover that they, they've they've been become a victim, and and how to how to build cyber resiliency. I don't think we're going to have a, a perfect cyber defense, but I think we do need to have an ability to to raise the bar of entry potential adversaries and then limit the damage they can create once they're inside. And and to the extent that we can do that for the general public, but particularly for people who are involved in national security, it would be it would be excellent. And there is no, you know, there's there's no there's no false deadline here, right? I, and I think that's one of the things I would like to make a point about about the 2027 timeframe, the 2030 timeframe is, you know. Some people think that putting these deadlines out there for, you know, China's going to do X by Y date um, motivates people. But there's also, and I think you, your comment alluded to this, there's also a sense of defeatism that can come in from that. Well, if they're going to do this by 2027 and we can't do anything about it by then anyway, then why should we bother trying to do anything at all? And I think that's actually just as pernicious as complacency, right? So you have, you have to find this balance of, of getting people to believe that not only is this a problem, but it's actually a soluble problem. And if all we do is we make the Chinese out to be, you know, 10 feet tall and they're going to invade Taiwan tomorrow and there's nothing we can do about it, then that's how we'll behave. We'll behave as though they're 10 feet tall and we'll behave as though this is going to happen inevitably and we'll behave as though there's nothing we can do about it. And that is absolutely the wrong answer. They are not 10 feet tall. There is something we can do about it. They are not necessarily going to invade tomorrow. We absolutely can deter them from taking this action. And so, you know, I would say, yes, yes, please do um, educate people about cybersecurity. And, and, you know, actually, you know, there's a good example here from the Chinese side and a little bit from the Russian side, but really from the Chinese side. Um, If you read cybersecurity analyses of China uh, about 10 years ago, um, maybe a little bit longer, but really about 10 years ago, they were a mess, the, the Chinese were, in large part because they were using huge, like just insane numbers 
of pirated software and pirated operating systems, most, mostly uh, Microsoft Windows. But because they were using pirated versions, they weren't getting any of the security updates. So they had just like, in like just like vast swaths of shiny society were using computers that just had like known zero day vulnerabilities throughout them. And this wasn't just like random citizens. This was, you know, businesses, sometimes government entities. They were just, it was just rife with, with these vulnerabilities. And eventually what China realized was that their pirating, their, their, their IP theft at scale was actually a problem that they had to deal with it. They couldn't, they couldn't keep operating in this way because it was opening up this massive cybersecurity vulnerability. And so they basically cracked down on it. Now, as you mentioned, this is something that an authoritarian system could do. It's a little bit more difficult for us, but you know, collective action is possible, right? We still have an ability to act collectively as a nation, despite all our divisions. Um, I still believe that that's so, I still believe that, you know, that there's a world in which we could, we, we could, we can get there. It's just we have to we have to stop you know fixating on our differences and disagreements and, and and fixate on what are the things that we can all agree that we want to do and I think one of the things hopefully that we can almost all agree on is that we don't want to live in a world that is dominated where the rules are written in Beijing by a bunch of you know authoritarian techno autocrats I don't want to live in that world I don't think you do I don't think most Americans do and you know where we want to go from there I think that's up to us but we do I fundamentally I think most Americans can agree. We want our decisions about who we are as a nation and what we do as a nation to be made here in the United States and not somewhere else. Well, yeah, and I mean, you know, but the uh, distinction between um, progressive liberal thought and you know Marx's version of communism is uh, is blurring, and I think there is a perception among Gen Z that another form of government might uh, might work out better than the sort of free market capitalism that we try to. Uh, try to manage here. So God willing, you know, we are able to retain a world that uh, encourages private ownership and competition. I think we've talked about the prioritization of threats and, you know, your view of uh, the uh, NDS in the future and prioritizing China. The rest of that question, though, and going forward, I think, if deterrence fails, how do we prepare the fighting sources to get ready for a serious sort of semi-conventional adversarial thrust if China decides, for example, that they don't like the way we're showing the world our relationship with Taipei. What's their next move and how do we how do we deal with that? Yes, I mean, if you're looking at a potential war with China, usually from a US perspective, I mean, not usually, always from a US perspective, we do not plan to start a war with China. So when we're thinking about conflict with China, it's going to be a conflict that China starts. And, you know, the upside of that from a U.S. perspective is that we're not the aggressors. You know, we're not we're not the ones out there, you know, violating international law. And, 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 there, and there's strategic advantages that come to that. Right. Generally speaking, um, it's easier to rally a coalition to your side. The downside to it is, means we're handing we're handing China the initiative in this conflict. Right. They get to take the first punch. And so the first thing we have to do as a country and, and as an armed force, sorry, as the Department of Defense, is to make sure that we can withstand that first punch. When I talk about war with China or, or even with Russia, I say the first thing you have to do is not lose the war. We're not going to win the war in the first, you know, the opening days or opening weeks of the war. That's not likely. You know, I think Ukraine, one of the things I hope that Ukraine has taught people is that war between two major powers is probably not likely to be all that short. So anybody who is out there telling you, oh, this war is only going to last X number of days, Unless that number is like in the hundreds or potentially the thousands, you probably shouldn't listen to them. 
right? Because the war is probably likely to go on for at least months, if not potentially into the years. So that's you know point one though is in order to get to that point, you got to not you got to not lose so badly that you don't have a credible position once it's all said and done. The first thing the Chinese are going to do, um, and because they write about this pretty extensively in things like the science and military strategy, is they're going to attack us in space, cyberspace, and the electromagnetic spectrum. You know I, what the exact phasing of that is is dependent probably very contingent on how, how the scenario unfolds, but that's really where they see the immediate acute attacks to be happening. Now, obviously behind the scenes and all of that, a, a kind of a both before the war and, and during the war, you're going to see that three warfares approach to set the information environment to their advantage, to set world opinion to their advantage. And the other aspect, and it's a very underappreciated aspect of three warfares, at least outside of the China community, is it's not just externally focused. One of my former colleagues, um, Pete Mattis, who's now at the uh, Special Competitive Studies Project, um, has written extensively on how important three warfares is to ensuring internal political cohesion in the face uh, of an external threat. Um, and a lot of that's about rallying people behind the Chinese Communist Party, um, what the Chinese Communist Party calls political work, to rally both their internal cadres, but also people who are not inside the party itself to support political objectives of the CCP. So very important aspect of that as well. But it also has these, these external aspects of convincing regional audiences either to, to join on China's side or at the very least stay out of it and creating legal justifications for what they're doing. But anyway, so you know that scene center in now they've kind of launched a, a space, cyberspace and electromagnetic spectrum attack. And these things are targeting stuff like our communication satellites, our intelligence satellites, our communications links. You know, one of the things um, there's a, a good uh, uh, Wall Street Journal explainer recently on how they might attack undersea cables to sever Taiwan's connections with the rest of the world because they're only connected to the rest of the world for a handful of, 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 of undersea data cables. And those have you know, known landings, places like Kaohsiung in the south, near Taipei in the north. So you know, China would go after those landing sites, potentially the cables themselves to cut Taiwan off from the global information environment. And then you know, they, would, they would escalate to using things like you know, really precise ballistic missiles and cruise missiles to start attacking radar sites, early warning sites, surfaced air missile systems, airfields, ports, ships, command and control centers. Um, they probably try to take a shot to decapitate the Taiwanese government. Although, you know, generally speaking, we think the Taiwanese government would probably go into a bunker somewhere below, kind of in the in the bowels below Taipei. And, and you know, that's that's kind of the opening salvo. Now the question, the other big question, as I referred to earlier, is you know, what do they do to take a shot at the United States? And, you know, do they, do they just go after our satellites? Do they just go after our networks? Or do they launch the what we call a fire strike campaign at our, our overseas bases in Japan, particularly uh, the, the base in Okinawa, bases in Okinawa, both Kadena and um, Iwakuni, and then go after things like the aircraft carriers and our ships using anti-ship ballistic and cruise missiles and potentially even the future um, anti-ship hypersonic missiles or torpedoes launched from, um, from submarines. So, you know, you've got, you've got this kind of like multiplicitous threat both in kind of these non-kinetic domains like space, cyberspace, and the EM spectrum, but then also in the physical domain um, using air and surface-delivered missiles. The big question in the United States is, can we withstand that opening barrage? It's going to be real intense. It's going to be really chaotic. It's going to be really crazy. Um, but if we can, if we can come out the other side with combat capability intact, I think that really puts a question mark under China's approach. I think if they don't if they don't believe that they can launch that opening salvo, and if not knock us out, then knock us down pretty hard. 
for a few days, maybe even a week. If they don't think they can do that, I don't think they launch this invasion. And the reason why is there's a period of time from when they launch their invasion to when they actually fully get across the Taiwan Strait where they're just incredibly vulnerable. And even once they get ashore on Taiwan, those forces on Taiwan will be vulnerable. And the ships and aircraft that are bringing them supplies, fuel, munitions, food, all of that is going to be incredibly vulnerable to interdiction from the air, from the sea, from the undersea. And I think they have to be very concerned about the, about their ability to sustain that force on Taiwan once they get it. And there's going to be this constant tension for the PLA because the bigger force you get on Taiwan, right, the more combat power you have on Taiwan, right? Because you want to, you want to attain a, a localized force advantage over the Taiwanese defense forces. But the downside is the bigger the force is, the more logistical support it requires. And that's what we're, you know, we saw and we've seen this repeatedly in Ukraine. And I think we're going to see it even more going forward as the Russians mobilize more forces. A bigger army equals bigger logistical demands. And if you're limited in your ability to put stuff across the strait, whether by ships or by aircraft, if you're limited, especially if they can't get hold of a port, it's going to be really, really hard for them to keep those forces that are on Taiwan filled up with fuel, filled up with munitions, you know, getting them the, the medical supplies they need, evacuating injured, uh, injured soldiers, you know, all these kinds of really, you know, down in the weeds, logistical details of military operations. They're going to get really, really hard, really, really fast. And the United States learned this the hard way multiple times throughout the course of World War II, just how difficult this is. Um, you know, Guadalcanal, despite the decades we spent examining amphibious operations and the Joint Marine Corps Navy team, Guadalcanal was a bit of a disaster. It took several iterations of, of amphibious assaults like that to take to really figure out exactly how the Marine Corps Navy team was going to work. And then you look at the, the European theater, you know, Operation Torch, kind of a mess against opponents who were really, really trying all that hard. The French weren't really in the fight all that much. You know, then we had to figure it, you know, okay, we went from Torch to Husky um, to Natuno, then to, you know, then to Overlord, right? You didn't just go straight to Operation Overlord and, and the invasion of France. I think the concern, if I were a PLA planner, is you're kind of going from zero to overlord all in one big swoop without ever having done anything intermediate. I got to say, like, if, I think if we cannot lose in that first week, I think, you know, I don't know that I can't guarantee we win, but I guarantee it's going to be a real, real bad day for the People's Liberation Army. <laughs> well, thank you, uh, Chris. That seems like a great spot to, to end this at today. And I know I realize we're 10, 15 minutes over over our allotted time. So I want to be sensitive to that. And thank you for taking time out to do this. Uh, there's so much more here to unpack. And I, I hope we can do this again soon, because I'd like to explore a couple of these issues further. And besides, you know, by the time, I don't know what March rolls around, I'm sure the landscape will look different than it looks today. So um, if you don't mind, uh, we'd love to have you back and, and we'll do it again. Absolutely, Steve, and thank you for having me. Thank you, and thank you to our listeners who I hope enjoyed this. Uh, until next time, I'm Steve King, your host, signing off. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cybersecurity Unplugged. You can connect with us on LinkedIn or Facebook at Cyber Theory, or send us an email at social at cybertheory.io. For more information about the podcast, 
visit cybertheory.io forward slash podcast. Until next week, thanks again.